0: The following message was given by Dr Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. Well, Lord, it's just good to get back into your word again. and. Uh... Father, as we look at the life of faith and we look at your servant Abraham and the model he is for us, Father, we thank you that we don't need to earn your love or your blessing. We thank you, Lord, that it is an act of your grace and, and Father, I pray your word will speak to us afresh, that we come with you, that we would believe in you, we trust in you, and, Lord, that our faith would be found pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've already seen the first couple of chapters which have been largely biographical in one form or another, either as it relates to Paul's own journey from the law into faith and then the issues related to Paul and Barnabas and and Peter in terms of these uh, people who'd moved from law to faith But we're still kind of having a halfway bet, and how uh, Paul confronts Peter and exposes his hypocrisy, and that even you know Barnabas, who's known for his sincerity, is led astray. So that's the kind of the background. This at this point now, as we start chapter three, we we transition into Paul's argument in in Paul's letters. we normally have a pattern where he kind of greets them, gives brief biographical information on coming and going, what he's doing, has the fir- in his letters the first half of them, or even more than the first half, basically theological, addressing issues of error, and then he gets very practical in the application of it. In the case of Galatians, because it's quite short, you have the unusual feature of the biographical, kind of elongated out, because his life is his message and as I said because he he discovered the futility of trying to gain God's acceptance through observing the law and so in in many ways it's similar except his very testimony is the message he preaches so it kind of his theology begins in that way and so when we get to chapters three and four we are we're going to transition from Paul's own kind of testimony to theirs and to to the journey of faith of the greatest of the Jews. And so he, having spoken about himself, immediately turns on the Galatians, these people who had heard him preach the gospel, who'd seen him, had embraced his message, had come into an experience of faith, had seen various things. He's now going to point at them and, and as we do this, it's well worth us reflecting as we kind of go through this, just to think about ourselves, about have we in any sense fallen in the way the Galatians have fallen? He'll actually say, you've fallen from grace, that you know, we come into our relationship with Christ as an act of faith and then we begin this desire to please him through what we do and thinking that the more we do, the more He will bless us and, and so on. So, chapter 3, and um, I've called it the fruit of faith, and in the notes that you've got, lines that you've got, there are various sections. In the first section, Paul will talk about them and their experience of the Spirit. So let's read it. And uh, again, I'm just reading from a rough translation I've done myself. I think you'll find it's pretty close. And if there's anything significant which jumps out at you, say, so Ian, how come you've translated this way? And I'll try and explain it. A first Galatians who bewitched you before the eyes of whom Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Only this I wish to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And, uh, or that may well be better translated from the works of law or from the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now going on to accomplish by the flesh? And are you trying to accomplish it through your own strength? Have you suffered so much in vain, if indeed it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit and works miracles in you do it from works of the law or from the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham, our father. We'll we'll stop there. We'll we'll go to verse 5 and we'll back up. Now, uh, last week when we we met, I alluded to the the difficulty sometimes we have when when in, uh, I think it was the 16th century, the monks writing across Europe and he's putting the chapters and verses in, how unfortunate sometimes it is because it completely breaks a train of thought. But I remind you as we look back, at uh, chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, right? And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, if we remember that Paul says he's been crucified, chapter 3, verse 1 makes some sense. He says, A foolish Galatians who bewitched you before the eyes of him, or before your very eyes, Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified, now, what does this mean? It, it means that, you know, you have seen in my life someone who has died to the law and now lives a life of faith because that's what Paul says. He says in, back in chapter 2, he says, As a result of being crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the body I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me. Now, this is what he's alluding to. But he's saying, you know, you saw it. You saw how I live. You know, because his concern is how, you know, how could they not just hear what he preached, but see his living of it and so quickly turn to the very thing that he's rejected? They should have known better. They really should have known better when these other people come into the church and take them back to the law because they had in him someone who'd been totally obsessed with the law, committed to the law, sought to live by the law, and had turned away from it. But they didn't. And so he says, Who bewitched you? And that's literally what it means. It's, it's as if a spell was cast on them. Because how else would they have been deceived? why else would they have rejected what they'd heard unless, unless some kind of uh, spell is cast? Now, I, I'm going to comment upon this as we, we work through because we have to ask ourselves, why do godly people, Bible-believing Christians, have been churches, why do they get caught up in false teaching? You know, why why does it happen? He says, look, you saw Christ in my life. In Paul's life and in Peter's life, they saw the example of Jews who died with Christ to the law. Paul's amazed that they can have abandoned the gospel, which they have seen him actually living the gospel, not just preaching it, but living it in favour of a gospel which Paul knows is impossible to live by. He knows once you go into the law, it, it doesn't work. Now, this is the warning for each one of us. I remember when I first, because I'm, I'm using notes for this part of it, and I remember when I first prepared this study, because when I first taught this, because every time you teach, you add new stuff and so on. was well, Some years ago, my note is quite a, is interesting. It says, it's easy for convention speakers to teach truths which they do not live because they can't. What they preach doesn't work. But because they come, preach, and go, their hypocrisy is not easily detected. Paul, you know, appeals to us to say, look at my life, I can live this, I'm living this, It's what it works. Um... You know, I'm not ashamed when people visit my church from from other parts of the world to find out am I the same in Australia as I am in when I'm overseas. Sunday morning, um, we had a, a Russian a lady from Sochi, where I'm miss in Sochi, had heard I'd been in Sochi and came with her husband to visit the church. And you know, I'm not ashamed that someone from one of the countries overseas where I teach and will come and find out the way I live is different from what I preach. Or my church is different from what I've said it would be. It's known, the difficulties of course, is that we live in a world with itinerant teachers where it's not always the case that we have any idea whether what they actually preach they live. And it's in this sense that I I wonder whether or not today at times it's as if a spell is cast. You know, we go to, you know, I go <laughs> I to con- conventions. I teach at conventions. And so I'm I'm not speaking against the, the very concept of it. But you get yourself into a crowd and a certain atmosphere and a person who's got the per- per- capacity to persuade. And it's almost as if you think there are so many people, this person is so eloquent, what he says must be true. It's like a spell. Because Paul says to them, well, how can you be so foolish unless there's like a spell being cast over you? He says in verse 2, you know, only this I want to learn from you. <laughs> you know, And he's going to say, well, okay, let me ask you. Let, let me now, okay, let's not talk about me. Let me talk about you. Let me challenge you as to what you know about the way God works. He says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? See, that's the question. He says, you know, is it... Is it now, the word, in a, I don't know what Bibles you've got there. But in my translation, I said by the works of law or by the hearing of faith, it's the same as occurs later on there. The word translated by is a Greek preposition ek, which means out of. You now, does it derive from? Is the, the sense of ek is normally used of in the sense of an of? Is it of this, is it of that? Where does, where does it come from? And so did you receive the spirit? You know, as a result of the things you did in observing the law or as a result of you having believed in God. Where did it come from? He says, now where did it come from? He says, now we've talked about the works of the law. The phrase probably is definable of being, of being convincing God by keeping the moral requirements of the law, somehow persuading him because of our morality. In truth, each of us cannot do it. And so the answer, given that we can't convince him by that, there's only one possible source of God choosing to bless us and it has to be uh, originating in our faith. Well, here we, we have an interesting expression. It's uh, in here. It says the words of the law are quite clear. This, it's literally the, the hearing or the report or the sound of faith that's, and what does this mean? It means a faith which has come from hearing and believing. You know, it's a blessing. We hear, we believe, we receive, is what Paul, Paul hears. Unlike the law where we hear... We understand, and we try and do. It's a, it's a different step. It's a hearing that believes what's heard, and the person who says it. That's that's what it is. It's not a rejecting. It's not a doubting. It's not a double mindedness. It's it's a hearing, which res, which is a result of the Spirit. Paul calls the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, grace. I've taught you about this, you know, this saving grace and powering grace. Saving grace is the gift of Jesus. Powering grace is the gift of the Spirit. It's received through faith, not by trying to earn it. You call it grace because it's given freely by God, without reference to merit. There's nothing we can do to make us more worthy of God's favour. If it's favour, it's given to us because he, of his love. We have to believe he wants to freely give it to us and receive it through faith. Now let me, let me uh, this kind of takes us back to, what was the last series or even the series before, like we would, I was doing a, t- a teaching series specifically on the baptism and the Holy Spirit. So let me, let me just revisit that for just a minute because this is where people are confused. Let's say I'm talking to someone about the Spirit, which is, in this case, it's the the Spirit which does miracles and power. That's what Galatians 3 is talking about. He says, well, how, how did the miracles actually occur among you? And his answer is, well, you were taught, you believed, and you received. And so you can't receive what you don't believe and you can't believe what you haven't been taught. This is what so often happens. I remember in the series, I I talked a little bit about this. You know, on the area of the Spirit, do working miracles. There are a whole lot of Christians who actually don't believe the Spirit does miracles. They don't, don't believe it. And therefore for them... Faith begins with actually believing that God still does miracles. That's what faith is. That doesn't mean mean they receive a miracle, but before they even get to the point of receiving miracles, they actually have to believe that God God does miracles. And I've spoken to to Christians who said, well, God never does miracles in my life, therefore I don't believe in miracles. And I said, no, you've got the wrong way around. God doesn't do miracles because you don't believe in miracles. And then he said, well, I don't think God does miracles. I, and, and so I have this chat and I talk to people and I take them through. And in the end, I, sometimes I can get them to believe that, yes, God does miracles. The Spirit of God still does miracles and so on. And so I've shifted them the first step. It, they have now come to a place of faith that God does miracles. But that is not the step of actually receiving. That's only the step of believing. Because not only do I have to believe that God wants to, say, empower me with the Holy Spirit, I actually have to, in faith, receive it. And receiving, I have to receive what I hear, but I also have to receive what I hear. In faith. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, He came to that which was his own, that's his own people, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now he's talking about two different things. Those who believe in his name and received him. Now this is, this is the concept to explain it. Let's say someone comes to that door and you say, who is it? And they say, it's Roger. You have to, and you're afraid, but Roger you trust. So first of all, you've got to believe it's Roger. So you believe it's Roger. You believe that's who it is. But that doesn't mean Roger's come in yet. (laughs) All that means is you now believe it's Roger. The next step of faith is actually opening the door and asking him to come in. That is also an act of faith. But it's the actual act of faith of receiving, not just believing. And in terms of the Spirit, I've often spoken to people concerning you know, the being filled with the Holy Spirit or whatever it might be, you know, works of the Spirit, and they, they come to a point of belief, but they will not then transfer the concept of faith from believing to receiving. And I've said, no, you've got to receive this in faith not just believe that what I've said is true, but actually receive it in faith. And he, he says this is what they've done. The danger is that we may see the act of securing, if there's a danger, I suppose, it's the, the fact that we actually think of our act of believing as a work, which is not. Because it's never because of faith, but it is through faith that God's grace comes to us. We have to believe and receive. But without believing and receiving, we can do that. But without God's willingness to give, we still won't receive. It it. It's really because of God. The Spirit is a reward. It's a gift. It's not a payment of wages. So he says again, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, now you're going on to kind of to do accomplishments through the flesh. It's like they've been sidetracked. Now, as I said, <laughs> well, he says to them in verse 4, have you suffered so much in vain? Because when they first embraced the faith, they will have been rejected by family members and friends and so on. Not because of anything they did, but because they believed. That's why they've been rejected. And he says, if indeed it really is in vain. Now, Paul doesn't actually believe that. He He's persuaded because they have known what it is to live by faith, because they've known the work of God in their lives, he's persuaded he can get them back. So again, he asks the question, does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles in you do it from the works of the law or from the hearing of faith? They know what they've received from the hand of God and why? Let I say, it's really good for us to go back. Just remember what we receive from God's hand freely and ask ourselves, have we subtly you know, beginning to think, well, yes, I know I received that by faith, through my faith, but now I'm really looking to God to bless me because of what I do. It's that subtle, isn't it? You know, neither legalism nor ritualism leads to the power of God. They began to trust God and not themselves. And they experienced God's power for the first time. Tragically, is having begun to trust God, even as Christians, the temptation is to begin to trust ourselves. Because that's really what keeping the law is, trusting that I can do whatever is necessary, forget God, to love me and forgive me and bless me and so. On. So that's probably a good point for us to pause for a minute or two in case if you want to reflect on that and comment or ask questions. and we explain it in the discipleship in our series, is it the way that we see the foundation of the belief is not strong enough that can lead them astray in, in other you know, people that comes through and talk them? The yeah. The, the, for the tape, the question is, why, if they've started the right way, do they get led astray? I, I th- Jesus you know, gives a parable of the sower, and he, which suggests that in the formation, early formation of faith, it goes through stages of testing and is quite vulnerable till it gets to the point where it's really deep enough to bear good fruit. And so, as uh, as young Christians, I think we are vulnerable for the first few years of our faith, till we get a sufficient grounding of the truth of God's word and the. The truths about Christ and the nature of God and just basic foundations. We we are vulnerable to being led astray. Someone once pointed out to me that that the cults, things like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, never never go out in the streets and evangelize drunks and and drug takers and whatever. They go to the middle class people of the superb suburban environments. They go to people who and they try and find some people who have contact with the church, those who are already religious in some sense, and then they trick them. They ask them questions, and when they can't answer them, they, they, they say, well, you know, what does your church teach you? Hasn't the church explained this to you? And when it's some verse in Revelation, they say, no, 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 I have none. Well, you know, would you like to have a Bible study? We can explain this to you. It's wonderful. Your church obviously hasn't taught you that, And so the person thinks, well, you know, I'll have a Bible study. It won't do me any harm. It's in my home. It's quite safe. And slowly the whole, whole thing is to kind of know the buttons to push, where a person who is not well-grounded, properly taught, is susceptible to being led astray. And... Uh, and it's interesting because if they knock on a door, you know, it's a godless person who's never been to church. <laughs> they slam the door in their face and curse them as they walk down the street, you know. It's, it's often it's the church goer who feels almost an obligation to invite them in, but they don't have the resources to, to do it. And now that's one, that's one side. The other side is the spell, you know, is uh, the sense of, I'm speaking now as a pastor. I, You know, I know Christians who've been going to church for years, going to good Bible teaching churches for years, been to colleges, whatever, but when a new fad comes, some new teaching, some new concept, some new videotape, some tape, you know, whatever it might be, some new book, it's kind of, and it's new and it's exciting, they can lose perspective. And just kind of, and when, when, and, um, you know, sometimes it's counselling theories or whatever it might kind of might be. They come along and they say, oh, Ian, I've been away for this weekend. The teaching is fantastic. You know, it's life-changing. This is what our church needs, blah, blah, blah. I asked them, where have they been? And, and I said, oh, yeah. I said, uh, and I said, yeah, what were you taught on this subject? Because I may know the group. I may, and I I said, it doesn't occur to you that what they're saying is unbalanced? Yeah, it doesn't occur to you that... The fact that it's true, if it's not the whole truth, it can be in error if you just embrace part of a truth. And uh, I can think of folk who've come to the church over the years who, who feel me in trying to bring them to a balanced position, I'm attacking this ministry as if it's ungodly and so on. And yet the very reaction of them makes it quite clear they've been seduced. It's like the spell over them. And I said to them, you know, there's some really good things in that ministry, but it's unbalanced in some of the areas you need to be aware. Oh, no, no, it's wonderful. I'm going and they're saying, you know, I've listened to it and it all seems good to me. And I, well, I, don't, I never say to them, look, I'm sorry, but you know, it may seem good to you, but I know better. I may know better, but if you say it, it doesn't help them. And, and, this, and I say, well, you be careful. And I, I can think of young Christians who've, who've been older Christians who can, come, you know, we have the expression "chew on the meat and, thro- and ch- throw out the bones." Who can, or in First Thessalonians, find discerning what is good and rejecting what is evil, who are quite capable of doing that. And they take along some young Christian to this thing. The young Christian swallows the whole thing, and that's the that's the kind of. Problem's now. What do you do? Well, I can tell you what you don't do is I don't start getting up in the pulpit and saying, don't go here, don't go there, don't go there. I don't start denouncing this person's ministry. I figure the best defence is if I just teach the truth, teach the truth, teach the truth, in the end people will be able to recognise when there's something not quite right. Yeah? In, I don't know whether to put this on the record, but I had an experience a couple of weeks ago at my local church when I was asked to share the work I'm involved in, in bringing Christianity to Islam, mm-hmm. and um, with a group of mature Christians. and uh, I, I started to, to talk about the, the difficulties of doing so overseas, and the need for tent-making visas, and and uh, I was going down this track, and, and how we, we go in as tent-makers, and we and we share the God. For those folk who are listening to this tape, we did pause for some uh, discussion about this as it works itself out today, it was best not to be on the tape. So let's, let's continue on then in the next section, uh, which is from verses 6 through 9. And the case study Paul takes them back to because part of it, of course, is that the people who are leading the Stray Jews, it's the Judaizers, it's those who've come from Jerusalem and saying, it's not enough to believe in Christ, you must also become a Jew. And that means you must submit to the requirements of the law, including circumcision. That to be a believer in Jesus, who's the Messiah of the Jews, you must become a Jew. And the church had resolved, resolves that in Acts 15, that they don't have to, but that's the message. So what does Paul do? He says, well, you want to talk about being a true Jew? Let's talk about Abraham. Verse 6. He says, just as, in the sense of the blessing comes through faith, just as Abraham believed in God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, then you know that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. It's not literal descent, but it's those who share his faith. Jesus in Matthew 3, 8 and 9, I'll read it, it simply says this, Therefore bring forth the fruit in keeping with your repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children. For Abraham, it's Jesus will not accept that DNA is a test of salvation. It's a question of where they share the faith. It's not those who are born to Christian parents who are Christians, but those who share their faith. Natural Jews were born into a covenant relationship, but faith is necessary for the benefits of the covenant to be realised then. Verse 8, he says, "You know The Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles through faith. When it announced to Abraham that all the Gentiles shall be blessed by you. And a couple of scriptures, that's Genesis 12, 3, Genesis 18, 18. In fact, God foretold that Abraham would not only be a model of faith, but his example would be followed by many leading to God's blessing. See, what do do we know of the... uh, the, Let's turn across to Romans 4. And let's look at Abraham as, as he uh, goes into a little bit more detail. Romans 4. Paul says, what then shall we say? This is verse 1, that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, boast about but not before God. What does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. As righteousness. Now when a man works, his works are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And the quotation is there, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And he says, "Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised?" We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. On what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised, or before? It was not after, but before. He received the son of circumcision, a seal of righteousness, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. As so then he is the father of all who believe, but not have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So. Inasmuch as circumcision, you know, is the the beginning of observing the law, the first act of, a, of a circ, first act under the law that a Jew experiences is the act of circumcision. Paul's argument is, is simply this: When was Abraham declared to be righteous? Before or after he was circumcised? Before or after the law? And the answer is before the law. So, circumcision is not something which brings righteousness. It's something which is a seal of righteousness. And that, that you have been declared righteous. Now, you know, there are people who would argue, for example, that under the new covenant, baptism is the substitute for circumcision and therefore that's why we baptise infants. Now that's actually, that's actually not what Paul says. Paul says what replaces physical circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. But one, what one can say, however, is that you know, baptism is a sign or seal of what is already in the heart. It doesn't bring it. Now, at a baptismal service, your person is asked, "Do you repent and willing to repent of sin? You know, are you willing to be crucified with Christ? Are you willing to confess Jesus as Lord?" And also on the basis of that confession that they're baptized. So, the baptism is a seal; it doesn't bring the faith. It's a sign and seal of the faith. There's a three-month-old baby. Came. Yeah, well, that's, well that's, but as an adult, therefore, I'm not saved by baptism. I'm saved through faith. And so Abraham is this example that it's through faith. And they all knew the story of Abraham. And he says, then you know that those, verse 7, those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Now, Paul has two points to make here, not just that God's favour, his blessing, righteousness comes through faith. But he wants at this time to add the second string, which we've already seen, and that blessing is not just for Jews, it's also for Gentiles. And why does he he introduce this, that it's for Gentiles and not just Jews? Because if it's only for Jews, then you have to be circumcised. You have to come... you have to have it. But he says, it was. if you go back to Genesis, it was never intended that it be just for Jews, but through faith, all were to be believed. He says, the Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles through faith when he announced to Abraham, all the Gentiles shall be blessed anew. So let's go back to Genesis and have a quick look at it. I don't know if you can follow it. What he's saying is, look, if, it's, if Gentiles can't be saved, then it must be by the law. So it has to extend to Gentiles. Genesis 12, verse 2, he says, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll bless you, I'll make you name great. And your blessing I will bless those who bless you and I will curse and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 18. 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Now, what's interesting, of course, as you read through the Old Testament, it seemed to me that the Jews very quickly decided that all the blessings just were for them. And God was on their side and God had no desire to bless anyone other than themselves. In other words, they very quickly felt that they had this exclusive covenant with God. And given that that's the case, that's quite an interesting issue for us to ponder right now. In terms of historic Israel... Any notion that God is only on the side of the Jews and not on the side of the Palestinians or the Arabs is completely foreign to Genesis 12. In fact, God wants them, Israel, to lead others into a relationship with Him and through that be blessed. He wants whatever they do, to bring them, others, and the very thing they're doing at the moment, of course, is saying, we don't care about anyone other than themselves. And therefore turning people away from the God of Israel. Verse 9, so those of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Verse 10, however, All who are children of the works of the law are under a curse. So we're down to verses 10 through 14. For it is written, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Blessed is everyone who does not keep doing everything written in the book of the law. Verse 11. But it is clear that no one can stand before God justified by the law. Rather, the just shall live by faith. No one can continually, fully keep the law. The difficulty is that the law is merciless in in terms of its requirements. Legalism has no grace. You only have to break one law and you're guilty. It's a persistent master which can never be satisfied from which there is no rest. In some ways, legalism is like idolatry. Let's just talk a little bit about, about it. In the case of idolatry, you can never satisfy the idols or the gods, no matter how many sacrifices you make. Their demands never cease. Though so much is offered, the path to achievement and satisfaction obscures the impossibility of the journey. Do you know uh, Hindus who are idolatrous um, that in, say, Bali, the Balinese form of Hinduism, uh, a person would expect to spend 70% of their income on offering sacrifices. In fact, they offer sacrifices five times a day, whether it's fruit or chickens or whatever it may be, as part of a sacrificial system at the temple. That (laughs) was... People complain about the church and asking 10%. This is is 70%. And, um, And then you have to say, well, why then would it be attractive? What is the attraction of legalism or idolatry? The attractiveness is that it offers you the opportunity of reaching a goal under your own strength where you can feel like you've attained it. The way, the way I describe it, however, it's like climbing mountains. You know, and you climb up this mountain and you get to the top of the mountain and you feel really great that you've climbed the mountain. You know, you put yourself through these ritual disciplines or self-suffering or hours of meditation and you finally get to this place of enlightenment, only to discover there's a valley and another mountain to be climbed. And there is never not another mountain. I suppose I was encouraged by the statement, everything worthwhile will cost you something. The temptation is to pursue a lifetime of striving and accept the frustration of constant failure. And yet in faith there is this place of rest. Now, we, as we're going to see when we get to five, chapters 5 and 6, it's not that we won't live a life of virtue, that we don't live a life of the fruit of the Spirit. But it just it's just coming from a completely different place. It's not a, it's not a life of striving. It'll be a life of, of engagement and communion with God. It comes out of our relationship with God and so on, but we'll wait till we get there. Verse 11, Paul says, It's clear that no one can stand before God justified by the law but rather the justified, those who are righteous through faith, then live by faith, out of their faith. It's a faith life. The, verse 12, and it's, a, it's actually quite difficult to translate. It says, the law is not faith, but rather, and this is my translation, but he who does the law shall live in them in the sense that once you submit yourself to the law, legalism becomes a whole lifestyle and you find yourself embraced in it. You know, if someone, for example, if someone says to you, well, I believe Christ died for you, but you must keep the the Sabbath and you must observe every Saturday. It never stops with one. And then you find, well, you can't eat meat. and then you can't drink alcohol, you can't smoke, you can't, there there will not be an end to, it becomes a life in itself. Now there may be very good reasons why you don't smoke and there are certainly good reasons why you don't drink too much alcohol and these sorts of things, It's, it's more the question that it becomes a slavery, which is what he will speak to us about. He calls it a curse, it's like a curse is over them, verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law becoming cursed in our behalf because it is written, Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Christ suffers the consequences of the requirements of the law. His cross, as he hung on it, was, a, was the symbol of all the judgments of the law being brought against him. You know, Paul, and I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, and the Lord has, well, was it in uh, Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, to bear in his own self our sin. He did not die in vain, nor was his death without meaning." was part of God's predetermined plan. Again, a scripture, Acts 2, 22 and 23, the earliest of all the sermons of the apostles says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man, attested to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless man. Having spoken of Christ's death to deliver us from living under the curse of the law, he says, and um, verse 14, Acts, uh, sorry, Galatians 3.14, starts with a simple Greek word, hina, which means in order that. And whenever you find a (laughs) hima, whenever you find in order that, you've got to link what's just gone before to what's about to follow. In other words, his cross was in order that the blessing of Abraham might occur to the Gentiles in Christ. In other words, he, it's not just Jews who live under the law. Is so it say there's a there's a legalism within Islam. There's a legalism within Hinduism. There's a legalism within Buddhism. There's a legalism within any religion or society, and each has to be delivered from out from underneath it. It wasn't just the Jews who were in bondage to the law; the Gentiles themselves had to be delivered from it, and. Um, you know, Paul writing in the Christians of Galatia and places like Ephesians and in Ephesus. You know, when you go to Ephesus and, and uh, just out, outside the town was the great temple to Artemis. Artemis or Diane? Artemis. I don't know. One of the two. Maybe it's the, one of the same anyway. Same. But, you know, just... Is this huge temple? And they all knew what it had cost them, as as Gentiles, to try and placate the gods. This is this is. Although it has a Jewish expression, it's not distinctive Jewishness. And this is what I keep saying: This is not just about the Jews. It's about Australians living in Australia at the 21st century who are. These are like the. It's awful to say it, but it's like the lady who bakes lamingtons for forty years, for the, the for the annual church Christmas stall, believing, and walks away believing that when she stands before God, God will count the lamingtons. Oh, it's a funny kind of way. Now, if she does it out of love for Christ, what a blessing! It's the only thing she can do, and she does it out of love. And what an incredible blessing. I feel. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and the Lord will say, man, I wish I could have had one of those, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but it's, uh, you know, in some cases, it's the men who who uh, joined the service clubs, the Rotary clubs, the Ro- Lions clubs, and so on. And he spent 30, 40, 50 years in these clubs and who. Who feel you know God? God will look at my good works. Masonry is a good example. Yeah. yeah well. Yeah. Well, Masonry as well. Last night, as I, <laughs> I, I, because I'm a Rotarian, and there are many good, and I have freedom to preach the gospel there. It's just, it's a wonderful situation. But I was sitting next to a man, and he's 87, and he said to me, he says, "In, and there's a round table. Everyone's listening to it, Seven or eight of us around this table." And uh, he says, Ian, he said, um, he said, when I go, will you do my funeral? My funeral. It was a strange kind of question. But, and he's got his marbles clear. He just did the talk the week before. you has know, got a wonderful mind. And he says, you know, I'm not, I'm not really religious. I'm not very religious, he said, but my mother was. she read the Bible every day of her life, you know, and all this. And I know what he's been in. He's been in clubs and he's been in... The, the lodge, and he's been in all of these things, which will kill. Well, Rotary doesn't, but some of these things can kill spiritual hunger at all. And I said to him, I said, mate, I think you and I need to have a quiet chat before too long. <laughs> at eighty-seven, I better not leave it too long. But, but, and I actually feel he's open, because in the very way he expressed it, he expressed. An uncertainty of his destiny. He's not anti-God at all. Actually, he, what he's not sure of is whether he's what he's done is enough. I'll go and see him, and I'll, I'll explain. You know, you may have done these things with a desire to please God, and I'll explain God, it's through faith. And I actually believe he's open. He's he's open to actually receive it, but it. It is a faith. So we, this is the thing today. Verse 15. We, we come back to covenant promises and we're going to kind of get there a little bit further. He says, He says, Brothers, I speak according to a human example. Once a man has ratified his will, no one can nullify it or add to it. It was as Binding. To Abraham and to seed, the promises were spoken, saying to his seeds as if to many, but there's one to your seed who's Christ. Now that's come back to it if we need to. This is what I say. He says, A covenant, having been ratified by God, cannot be made void by that which occurred 430 years later, so as to abolish the promise. Now, what's he saying here? Abraham received the promise from God that he was righteous by his faith. Um, 430 years later, Moses gets the law on their way out, having been imprisoned prison and spent years in Egypt on the way out. So the law cannot change the will which is made 430 years before. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer by promise. But to Abraham, it was fully given by God through a promise. We probably can all easily understand the very human picture that he's giving to us. None of us work for our inheritance. It's our fathers who will or will not give it to us. (laughs) I got my inheritance when my father died. Three pairs of pyjamas and two ties and some debt. Even if we try very hard to please our parents, they can still at any time prior to their deaths choose to give our inheritance to another. We must depend on their word when they tell us that they've left us their inheritance. And we will discover whether or not they've told us the truth when the death occurs. But once the death occurs, the will can't be altered. Now, in our, under our law, people do have, every now and then have a go at it. There's a famous case going on in Western Australia about a certain minor but <laughs> they've been trying to overturn the will. But the law is very reluctant to overturn a will once provided there is a will and it's the person's died. Which rightly then asks the question, why then the law? And Paul says, it was added by reason of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made came through angels. It came into effect by the hand of a mediator. It's like something added to the original will with the authenticity determined by angels and the signature of a chosen mediator, presumably Moses. It's as though the promise and the heirs are determined by the will. However, the heirs have to be taken care of until they're old enough to inherit what's been left to to them. Who is to take care of them until the time they're ready to inquire the inheritance? This is the role of the law. Not to add requirements because they're heirs by promise, but to take care of the heirs so that they might stay alive long enough to inherit. It's the law which must instruct and protect them so that they do receive the inheritance. Now, in verse 20, it becomes, Paul's argument becomes quite complicated. He says, the media is not between one, but God is one. It's a strange verse. Paul is saying there are... What's he saying? Well, I can tell you. If you read the commentators, there's 300 different views. <laughs> Perhaps Paul is saying that although the will is between two parties, the parents and the kids... The donor and the heirs—it's really up to the donor as to who receives what. It's really one. It's really one person who's important. So, though there is a mediator, his only role is to do what God wants. I don't know the mediator is not there to negotiate a settlement between the two parties or alter the will or to change what was an unconditional promise. But the mediator is there to somehow see. Person to whom the promise is given receives it. Verse 21 Therefore, is the law contrary to the promise of God? Never. For if the law had been given which is able to give life, then righteousness would be from the law. But the scriptures or the covenant bound all things under sin in order that the promise from faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, the law is not contrary to promise. It's there to keep us aware of our need for forgiveness. Reminding us of our sin, it confronts us with our need of God's grace. Without the law, we would foolishly trust in our own ability to gain God's acceptance. We'd be deceived that we're good when really we're bad. We're tempted to try and attain God's grace. The law exposes the sinfulness of our motives and shows how much we need God's grace. It's um, it's a subtle thing, and we we we'll kind of we'll, we'll come to it as we. Paul, I think it's in First Thessalonians one. He says the law is. We need to understand who the law is for. The law is for sinners, not for Christians. It has this work in our life to bring us to that place of repentance where we accept Christ. But once that happens. The law's work is finished. Now, if, if I were teaching Romans right now, I'd be, I would be right at the end of Romans chapter 5. That's where we get to, right? We're right, if, we, if we were doing this in Romans rather than Galatians, we're right at the end of chapter 5. And because people were listening to this message and saying, well, if it's by grace we're saved through faith, Let's sit all the more that grace may abound. In other words, this this message, wrongly understood, have led people to say, well, once saved, always saved. It really doesn't matter what I do. If I'm destined to salvation, I can live whatever life and somehow God will rescue me at the end. And, And in various kind of forms, this teaching comes. And yet the truth is that if I've been crucified with Christ, I've not just died to the law, but I've died to sin. I've died to being a slave to sin. And in Romans 6, 7 and 8, he will spell that out. And in Galatians, he's going to spell that out for us in chapters 5 and 6. But we've got chapter 4 to get to before we get there. He's not finished. see <laughs> He's not persuaded, we're fully persuaded. Really, when you think of what he's done, you know, he he's said, "How did you get God's blessing? Law or faith, they know the answer. How did Abraham get blessed? Before or after circumcision, before circumcision, you know, Christ died for us, delivered us from this curse. And you reckon that would be enough, but no, 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 he's got, he, he hasn't finished yet. <laughs> so ne- next week we'll do chapter four. And uh, when we've really kind of got this to the very core of our being, then the, out- the because it's like you can't live in the spirit, this is because chapter five is about living in the spirit. You can't live in the spirit and by the spirit overcome the works of the law. You can't do it till you die to living by the law. Die to trying to do it in your own strength. Because dying when Paul died with crucified with Christ, man, his life, yeah, you know, he's just so religious, so fanatical, so committed to the law. Until he really died to that, he had no chance of living in the spirit. Now, none of us here would probably say, Well, I'm not like Paul, but it could be pretty subtle as we do it the, kind of the Gentile way, not with phylacteries and clothes and hairdos and the Sabbath, we do it. We just do our, what Paul calls, dead works. Good things done for the wrong reason. Let's pray. Lord, I'm sure none of us at times are exempt from being tempted to doubt that you really love us unless we do things which please you. Lord, through our parents and the way they've treated us, in many ways we're conditioned to this. In our work, we get bonuses and rewards because we do well. Father, it's just such a... Strong part of our culture and our life. And yet, Father, we come back again to the fact that Christ died, but He was cursed for us that we might receive the blessing which is promised to Abraham. And so, Lord, I pray you use this again to remind us that we're not just saved by faith, but we're to live by faith. And Lord, by your spirit, just bind these words in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Dr. Ian Jagelman. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org.